Between the Lines with Andrea Gilligan. This is News Talk. You're welcome along to this week's Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan, where we'll be taking a closer look at some of the main stories and issues of interest. My thanks to everyone who got in contact regarding last week's programme, looking at how people will return to work, how businesses will reopen, and how public transport and commuters will operate post-COVID-19. You can still listen back to the podcast on our website at newstalk.com, or as always, you can download the podcast on the Go Loud app. And you can get in contact with us today by email- emailing Between the lines at newstalk.com or on Twitter at myself at Andrea Gilligan. Well, coming up on today's programme, we'll be asking how can students, parents, teachers, principals and schools get ready to reopen for the next school term. We'll also be looking at how secondary schools and colleges will also operate. Well, joining us on the line to discuss is the CEO of the National Parents Council covering primary, Anya Lynch. Anya, just first of all, can I get your view from, I suppose really from speaking to a lot of maybe teachers and parents, what's the view from people about kids heading back or even starting school now in September? Well, it's it, it's mixed. I mean, some some people are very you know kind of really looking forward to getting back into school and getting back to routine, children meeting their friends again, um, and and I suppose getting back to education because there's there's been a huge gap for some children. Um, but then there's also people who have got anxiety about that and and kind of I suppose asking what has changed that will keep my child safe, um, and and how will schools manage with the social distancing, etc. And for some parents, they're feeling both of those things, you know, that they, they want their child to get back. They want normality in their child's life. And they're anxious about the impact that um, I suppose the school closure is having on their child. But at the same time, are also anxious about how, how their child's going to stay safe. Mm. So it's a real mixed, mixed group of feelings, I think. And probably that call for clarity, too, about the, the reopening of services, because you represent both the, the very early years as well. We do, yeah. So there's, there's obviously, I mean, I suppose there's a huge issue for some for some parents and children around transition points as well. So you've got children who are just starting out in primary school, and you've also got children who are leaving primary school and going to to secondary school. So they they pose particular concerns for for, for children and for parents around those those transition points. And I suppose it's also important to remember that. Um, School closure hasn't had the same impact on, on all children the same way that we've got real varying varying impacts and and that can be for differences within the child themselves or it can be difference within in families and communities and um, I think we've got to remember that when we're planning for schools to go back that some children and some families are going to need a huge amount of more support than, than others and even if you look at the transition uh, from primary to post primary. Um, that, that the, the sixth class ending has, has has been a real shame for so many children in Ireland, and, and the normal kind of um, I suppose celebrations around the end of sixth class and the moving into secondary has, has has really been missing for all those children. But for some children, it's going to have even a more severe impact. There are children who are already, for whatever reason, starting to, to disengage with their education because they're struggling or there isn't the same level of support for their education at home. This long school closure period, um, at the time where they're then going to transition into secondary, can be really, is really critical to them. We already know from evidence that the transition from primary to post-primary for these children is, is a really critical time and that they need huge support around that time. And, and this long school closure and then going back into what we don't really understand yet is the, I suppose, the start of secondary, well, that, whether that will be kind of 
fully going into school and, and, and the indications are that that won't happen. It'll be some sort of hybrid model of going back into school. It could really impact for these children in a very negative way. So I think we need to make sure that whatever planning we're doing around going back into school, that we're, we're really putting in extra supports and maybe even looking at some of the things we might be able to do over the summer for these children to re-engage them back into their education and preparation that transition. So um, when you say that, to look at that kind of the, the re-engagement of some students, do you mean actually physically take them back in earlier than September? Well, I think we need to look at all options. I mean, I don't think there's any, any clear pathway at the moment because we don't really know where we are at with the public health advice and how that's progressing. And, and, and we don't know what's possible within the school context. But I think what we need to do is look at these children's needs and start our planning from that position. Um, I, it, it, it's very easy to get caught up with all of the, the blocks and the barriers and the challenges in terms of getting schools reopened and how that's going to happen safely and effectively. But we have to balance risk here. And I think what we need to do for a certain so- cohort of children, particularly children who've got special education needs, the, the children I'm talking about here that may be mm. slipping from education, and that might not just be in the transition period, it might be in other classes as well. There's the certain children who are more vulnerable to this long school closure than others. And I think we need to look at that and see from the children's needs point of view, what can we put in place to make sure that when schools do reopen, that they're still engaged within the education system and that this this won't have impacted their education um, for the rest of their lives any more than if, if it hadn't happened. We actually, in one of our Between the Lines programmes here a couple of episodes ago, looked at the impact of COVID-19 on children and how parents can, you know, can speak to and talk about this issue with their kids. One of the mm. points that was made by um, a child and adolescent um, a psychologist, Coleman Nocter, was the mm. point around the, you know, getting kids, maybe the very early, the very young kids that have only, are only in the crash stage or maybe baby infants in school, when they go back to school, that readjustment of actually, they've been back spending so much time maybe with their parents again who've been working mm-hmm. from home and there's mm-hmm. that whole nearly restarting school phase you know that, that, that they'd physically and mentally nearly have to go through again haven't been out of the classroom for so long yeah and I, I don't think that's for the really young children I think that's that, that we might have to look at that for all children because you know the whole a childhood thing seem to last a lot longer and routine gets settled very quickly and although we know children are missing routine and they're missing their friends we, we haven't had this before, so we don't know how they're going to find reintegrating into a very structured school system. And, and you know, if they, when they go back in, in September, that's going to be six months out of the school system that they, that they haven't been getting up in the morning. They haven't been getting into uniforms. They haven't been going and sitting behind desks all day. So I think, you know, we're going to really have to, to, to look and see how that this goes very, very, and keep a good monitoring of it because we, we can think... Well, they're all just, you know, most of them are delighted to get back to school and get to see their friends. And, but, but we don't know how the structure of this is going to impact children. So we're going to have to be very flexible and adaptable within the classrooms and within the schools to meet the needs of children and, and be very accepting of, of the challenges that that brings and understand that for children, this is a huge readjustment. And, and, and as, as Carmen says, you know, children have become very used to being in their homes, in their families. For some children, you know, that, that they, they've really enjoyed that period. For other children, that has been really difficult. I mean, not, not homes are good places for children. And we know we're talking about a very small number of children here. But for some children, they're in very overcrowded um, homes. They might be in violent homes. They might really be struggling within their homes at the moment. And, and that will have impacted over this period of time. And those children are then going back into school. Now, we, we know that 
schools will represent a safe place for them in that way. But but how are they going to respond to that? We don't know yet. So we're going to have to be very, I, I suppose, as I said, responsive to the children's needs when they come back into school. What's the, um, the, the the main point, I suppose, Anya, that you're hearing from parents at the moment? Are they concerned about sending their kids back into the classroom or are they looking forward maybe to the prospect of kids going back? Yeah, th- there is a mixture. There is a mixture. Um, we are hearing from a lot of parents at this time. Um, we're, we're hearing from more, and, and this is just parents who have decided to contact us, so I'm not saying that this is the general feel out there, but we're hearing from more parents who are anxious about the long school closure rather than sending their child back. But we are hearing from parents who are concerned about sending their child, children back into school as well. But, but, but in the main, we're hearing from parents who are concerned about the impact that the school closure is having them. Some, that's parents of children through all classes um, with no specific, particular additional needs. And then some from parents whose children are, are really, really struggling because of either special education needs or development needs or, or for whatever reason. And they're very concerned about the, the long period of time that they're out of school. And we have some parents who are calling for, for schools to be opened in some capacity before the end of this school year. So that's the level of concern that they have about mm. their, their, their children's um, period out of school. We've been hearing as well, Anya, a lot about the, the teachers who've been, you know, quite proactive in, in, in keeping in contact with the lesson plans and the videos. But I'm sure that that's not always the case, though. No, and I think it also um, it, it can be difficult in I mean in families as well trying to keep on top of of all the different things coming in. Some families don't have access to broadband or or have devices in the home that creates a particular struggle for them. Other families might have working parents at home and more than one children at different grades that they're trying to to, to support them through as well. So whereas I think in the main teachers and schools have been very proactive in terms of trying to keep in, in touch with, with children and their learning. There's, there's a huge amount of stresses and pressures in the homeschooling area as well. So, um, so, so it, it clearly if, if, if that would work smoothly, we wouldn't need schools. So it isn't working smoothly. And I think for a lot of, a lot of children um, trying to keep the home a happy, safe place for them has been the priority mm. for parents. And then, and then trying to make sure that as much learning can happen within that context is the main aim. Okay, just finally as well, Anya, what's your advice to parents in that position that maybe, you know, have kids where they they feel there could be maybe a little bit more engagement from the school? Well, there are guidelines, uh, guidance from the department um, that, that, are, that are available on our website and from the, and, and the department's website. But I think the main thing is to keep in contact with your school. Um, working in partnership between home and school is always important, but it's never been more, more important than as it is now. So I think contact your your, your class t- your child's class teacher if you can't get hold of class teacher. Contact the principal in the school and make sure that they're aware of the struggles that you're having. And and I think that that communication is is just really really important at this time. Anya Lynch, who is from the National Parents Council, the CEO of the organisation, my thanks to you for joining us on the programme today. Well, joining us to give us the uh, perspective from the Irish National Teachers Organisation is their General Secretary, John Boyle. Just first of all, John, what's been the impact of all of this um, on your members, firstly? Well, teachers love to teach, Andrea, and obviously teaching is a physical um, contact with children in their classrooms and there's a particular wonder and awe about learning in the classroom scenario in the primary with the young junior infants starting out to the 
sixth-class children just about to move on and transition to secondary. So um, it's a fantastic curriculum that we have in Ireland. Unfortunately, maybe it's not as resourced as it ought to be with the largest classes in Europe. But nevertheless, we're missing our pupils and we're missing, like any other worker, the contact with each other, um, going into the staff room every day and having a chat about what happened at the weekend and so on. But the impact, I think, on, on the children... Um, you know, they have continued to learn. Teachers have learned an awful lot as well in the last two months since schools closed because they've had to engage with technology in a way that they never envisaged in the past. And the children themselves that we would be most worried about, I suppose, are the, the vulnerable children, maybe those with acute special educational needs and children from uh, educational disadvantaged communities because teachers actually didn't have access to school buildings from the 12th of March until the 18th of May. And in some communities with no broadband or maybe not with enough um, facilities in the home to access remote learning over the Internet, um, we were really, really concerned for that period that they weren't getting their learning materials sent home to them. In fact, I I know one school that spent over €4,500 in the first week alone sending home uh, packs to the homes. So that, that has been resolved now with the teachers back in the school buildings for the last number of days. And um, between now and the end of June, uh, that remote learning will continue. But it's far from ideal. And the big concern now, I suppose, is for September, because government has said that it will be a phased reopening of schools. And I'm delighted that engagement is starting on that now uh, in earnest this week with meetings this week with the different stakeholders to plan for that. It's a mammoth task. But nevertheless, um, you know, phased reopening is is really something that we're worried about as well, because we usually all go back together. Yes. So so, so just to um, to be very clear about this, what's happening at the minute is we have the the teachers are currently in the classroom. Is that the case in every primary school, John? Well, you see, the the government roadmap kind of made an exception for education workers um, on last Monday, the 18th, because um, the map said that for the purposes of organising and the dissemination of uh, remote learning and for for organising that. So in that scenario, let's say in that disadvantaged school that I referred to, um, they've gone in um, in in certain class groups, maybe at certain times, not congregating together, uh, planning for their class and making sure that that work was sent out and and very often at at the school's own expense, unfortunately. Um, So it it would really depend. If, If the system that they've had has been working very, very well since the 12th of March with, uh, in areas where there's good broadband and the children are engaging very well. There isn't the same necessity for all the staff to be in together, but at least now that they have the access, that digital divide is is, uh, is no longer there, I suppose. Mm-hmm. One of the points that was made previously um, and, and earlier this week as well, John, was the fact that, you know, we've been hearing from, um, in some cases, where teachers, some teachers, as you've mentioned, have been so proactive in terms of trying to keep in contact with lesson plans and videos and that kind of thing. But it's not always the case, though. No, as I said earlier, you know, different conditions. Um, so in, in some parts of rural Ireland, unfortunately, they don't have that access to the broadband in the homes or in the schools, particularly in the primary, um, because we never got the same broadband facilities in primary that some of the secondary schools had. And and those things are now coming back to roost. Um, so I suppose, yeah, some teachers are very, very adept at using technology. And as you say, doing, um, you know, uploading all these various videos. And I know myself, there's many teachers in rural Ireland who are 
uh, outside, maybe um, in their back gardens doing PE lessons and then uh, sending that remotely to the children and asking them to copy the exercises and uh, equally for science experiments and all that. But it, it would depend, yes. And, and the big area, I suppose, is that it's difficult really to engage remotely with a child with complex special educational needs. And those children, of course, couldn't be back in the school in some cases because maybe their health might be compromised. You know, they, they could they could have underlying health conditions. And other children then who have sensory issues, you need maybe the one-to-one contact with the resource teacher supported by the special needs assistant. And it hasn't been possible to replicate that online. So, so you're right to say that... Um, it, it would be, in some scenarios, is working very, very effectively. And unfortunately, um, with the lack of access to school buildings for two months, it hasn't worked as effectively elsewhere. But I think teachers have stepped up, and we certainly haven't heard too many complaints from parents um, in relation to this issue. Um, you know, they, they realise that we're in a new, different scenario now, and it's very, very difficult to replicate a school um, classroom uh, remotely like that when you're engaging with the homes. How do you envisage this phased uh, recommencement, resumption of teaching actually, uh, you know, rolling out in primary school, John? Well, I suppose like we we have some key principles going into the engagement and obviously we want the priority to be given to the safety and the physical, mental health and well-being of all the different people uh, in the school community and and their families. So uh, I suppose looking at what's happening in other jurisdictions, uh, one of the key things I've noticed is that the access for parents and visitors to the school buildings has been restricted greatly, especially initially when they were getting used to getting back into the system in the school. Um, the priority, I suppose, was given to the, the teachers, the staff and the, and the children within the building um, because we, we don't want the infection rate to increase again in the community after us doing so well as a country. So that, that would be the first priority. Then after that, I mean, obviously the learning uh, and development of the children, those children that were vulnerable that I referred to, you know, they do have other agencies mm-hmm. that support schools like in, in National Educational Psychological Service and CAMS and so on. So we'd be hoping that there would be more of that available. And then uh, how do I envisage a phased? Well, first of all, the government plan at the moment says phased reopening of schools from the beginning of the academic year. I mean, that plan was written and published on the 1st of May which is like four months away from the time that schools are yeah. to reopen. So hopefully the plan will change. And, you know, around the social distancing, for example, if the public health advice were to change in relation to the social distancing um, two-metre rule, that would be a real game-changer f- for schools because, you know, um, we have the massive classes, but obviously if, they, if the children and teacher only had to be a metre apart, um, it, it would mean that you would be able to get quite a lot more children, but I, I'm not so sure that we would be able to get the 30 children in the primary uh, back into the same, sometimes a small classroom in the older mm. building. Is that something you're, you're calling for, John, as well? Are you, you're, you're calling for the, the two metre to be reduced to one metre social distancing guideline for primary schools? No, we're not calling for it, but I, I have been listening to some of the discussions over the last number of days about this, you know, and it's obviously a matter that's under discussion. The one thing that we've, I suppose, called for in a sense from the very, very, very beginning is that in the education sector where, you know, we represent over um, 50,000 members and then we would have maybe over 600,000 returning to the primary sector and over 400 to secondary, that whatever decisions are made for them, uh, be they decisions for the month of June, July or August or September, that they be taken in, in light of the public health advice that's there at the time. So mm. um, if it were to change, we'd certainly be cooperating fully with any changes so long as 
um, the plans are in place okay. because it's, the, it wouldn't be a simple matter of opening the following day no, after. No, and, and, and that, that's what I'm trying to get my head around. I mean, I'm just thinking for parents who maybe have, you know, a child and baby infants are going into uh, high infants and maybe they have another young child and, you know, first or second class in school. I mean, if we're yes. talking about a, a classroom of maybe 28 or 30 children, if they have to be two metres or even one metre apart, I mean, you'd imagine, like, does the phased resumption of the school mean that only... 15 students come in in the morning for a session with a further 15 in the afternoon or do families with two siblings in the one school do they get to go in to start school at the same time each day or like that's what I'm wondering is how does that phased element work like and and in relation to that question you know when you look at the situation in rural Ireland then um those questions become even more complicated because very often the children are traveling to school by bus and, you know, the, the notion that the bus would be on the road solid from eight o'clock in the morning mm. till four o'clock over and back with different groups of children, um, maybe the younger ones in the, in the morning and the older ones in the afternoon, wouldn't seem to be um, very possible from from my point of view at this time. But we, we are having these meetings now beginning this week, um, and Andrea, and these, these will all be... Um, worked out I suppose whether we'll have an answer by the end of this week but school principals and boards of management will want some clarity on these types of things as early as possible. Now my concern maybe at this point is that with phase five um, only being announced from I think it's the 10th of August um, if anything were to go wrong in the meantime and phase five were to be delayed please God wouldn't happen um, then we'd be under more pressure because I don't think we'll have a definitive plan in place We'll certainly hope to have as best preliminary planning done in the in the next couple of weeks so that there'll be some certainty. For example, you take a school now, if they felt that they had to remove some of the furniture from, from the classroom uh, to, to enable this distancing. I mean, the first question is where are you going to put the spare furniture? And, you know, schools don't really tend to have storerooms or spare rooms. So there's all of these yeah, things. And practical. I would certainly hope that that won't arise, that... That, um, that we would get back fully back to school in a safe way. Okay. And if the country keeps going at the rate it's going with the suppression of the virus, you know, I'd be very, very hopeful that, that we would get back um, and that all the planning would be in place. And, and that's the most important thing, really, for the safety of the children. And when they go back, you know, it won't be just start off again from the 12th of March because when children are, are out of the routine of school for that length of time, and some of them, you know, may may have seen things that they never, we would never have hoped that they would have seen with family members being very, very seriously ill or both parents losing jobs. There'll, there'll be, a, a, I suppose, an, an easing into school in September and hopefully the teachers will have plenty lesson plans provided by the, the National Curriculum Board for, okay. for assessment just to make sure that we can um, look after the children's welfare and their mental health as well as their, their the rest of their learning. OK, we'll leave it there for the moment. INTO General Secretary John Boyle, my thanks to you for joining us on the programme today. You're listening to News Talks Between the Lines programme. We'll be back with more on this issue in just a moment. Between the Lines on News Talk. Well, as the country has currently entered into phase one of the easing of the current COVID-19 lockdown restrictions, still another couple of phases yet to go. But one of the big focuses for many parents and indeed students at the moment is how and when will they go back to school? Well, joining us on the line is the director at Godsell Education and a former headmaster of St Andrews College, Arthur Godsell. Arthur, a lot of people um, are wondering, as I said, parents and students, when can they go back? When can they start education? But maybe first... First of all, from a primary and secondary um, uh, perspective, where are we at at the moment in terms of when kids can go back to school? Well, um, I think all indications are that um, 
September is the time when where the government are planning, the Department of Education is planning to open up the schools. So um, I think a lot of schools are already planning um, how they might do that. Every school is different. Uh, every school is a different campus, and they're going to try to, I suppose, accommodate the students within a safe environment. So I believe that they will open up um, in September unless we get another wave of COVID. Hopefully not, but they will open up in, in September. But it'll be a different environment, I'd imagine. How do you envisage that changed environment looking for students, Arthur? Well, I, first of all, as, you, as we're all aware, we have to have some form of distancing. Uh, now, in a classroom of 24 students, um, you may be down to 20, may down to, sorry, may down to about six students if you try to keep that. Um, so therefore, the timetabling may be very different. Uh, in terms of hand, you know, one-way systems in school and so on. But um, you may have a, a different timetable structure to accommodate that. Um, I would believe that there may still be some um, um, students at home for some part of the day. Uh, they may decide to bring students in, for instance, on a, uh, in the mornings in one set of class, in the afternoon in another set of class, so that students have school every day. Uh, but there may not be as much class time because obviously if you've got reduced numbers in classes, um, how do you manage to deliver the curriculum in those circumstances? So um, I'd imagine the timetable change and there may be some uh, still work at home. But having said that, it, I would imagine it might be more blended education, which is quite, an, quite a successful mechanism. Wh- what is learning. that, Arthur? What, what does blended education yeah, blended, mean? Blended learning, blended learning um, is uh, it's a mixture of in-class time and online um, work um, so that uh, the, whole, the problem up to date has been that it has been completely online and when it's completely online um, it's difficult to motivate young people at home uh, in, in situations like that. They do need the, the um, I suppose the atmosphere of the school, the structure of a school to help them uh, through their studies and so on. So I would think that you'll have some time in school but there'll be probably some time at home as well. I can't see everybody just going back into school in the same numbers with a large school of say 700, 800 students all back in there again. Schools weren't designed for social distancing so the, the different campuses will have to manage it in, in, a, in a safe way and it's safety is obviously the priority concern of principals at this time but it's, I don't think there's anything wrong with blended learning I think it's quite a good system a lot of third level colleges use this uh, it's just that it's not so used um, at second and certainly not at primary level um, but it has its values and I think if it's carefully controlled and, and managed by, this, by the management of the schools I think it can be successful but let's hope that the, you know, the continuing uh, improvement in the situation will allow for an easing of even those restrictions mm-hmm. I'm interested in this suggestion about the, the blended learning I mean would this sort of allow Arthur for more um, not necessarily <coughs> continuous assessment but maybe the idea of a little bit more project work or a little bit of what, like like the sort of learning activities that they do perhaps maybe in in the north and and in the UK. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, the, we have to move towards, um, you know, uh, pushing the curriculum back to the student, the learning responsibility to the student. Um, our system to date has always been learn this off by heart. If you get this question right, this answer down. That those days are gone in terms of developing skills amongst young people. Um, so we we will find ourselves um, trying to guide the child rather than to teach the child uh, through their learning process, and that's how you develop skills. Um, much more so than you know the, the simple way of learn this off and then put it on the paper. That's what we have at the moment, and I'm I'm I'm, I'm pleased that the government and the department have moved to um, assist the. 
uh, leaving sticket students at last um, and, t- and tell them, yeah, look, don't worry, we have enough data on you. Excuse <clears throat> me, and we will be able to get a, an accurate, um, you know, example of your work to date. Uh, I think that's, uh, I've read the whole guidelines very clearly there, and I think it's a very, very robust system that they put in place, and hopefully it might, and I, I, I predict actually that um, it, it might be much more accurate than people are, are um, suggesting it might be, in which case it may well be possible to use some of these elements uh, going forward, which would be a great step forward for things like the leading certificate and the idea which talked about continuous assessment, mm. or trying to get a system where I think students actually can, um, you know, their, their performances throughout the year are, are recognised rather than the performance in a three-hour exam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah. is not, which is just not right for anybody. Yeah, really. and, and, and the funny thing is, I think in advance of the discussion around what the government were going to do or what the, the decision from the Department of Education and the stakeholders would be regarding the future of this year's Leaving Cert examination. Mm. There was a lot of talk about the idea of the predictive grades and, you know, yeah. while a lot of students, and I can completely understand that, like for a lot of students that might have said, you know, God, no, I, I don't want predictive grades. Um, had I have known, I might have worked yes. a little bit harder yeah, at Christmas know, and I in know. the mocks. So it's kind of yeah. like, actually, had they've been given, and obviously nobody could have foreseen this, but have, you know, maybe for next year's batch of Leaving Cert students, yeah. if they'd forewarning about predictive grades, it might have a very different outcome. It might, but uh, the, the, the guidelines are very clear in a number of areas, and it gives great scope to the schools to do this. It's based on the concept of performance. Excuse <clears throat> me. And performance uh, can be any performance. Um, it's not just the performance in the total test, it's performance maybe in part of a test, that the student has exhibited uh, skills and strengths in one part of a test, but in actual fact, uh, the rest of the test wasn't so good. But the overall mark is not necessarily the one that the student's going to get. It's evidence of their performance. And the teachers are the best people to ensure that students, um, that, that the grades that students get are accurate for that student. And um, I think teachers, and it's been quite anonymized in a way too, because it's not just the teacher. The teacher gives a, a, a grade that they think, a calculated grade, and then the department in the school looks at that, and then the principal looks at it, and then the Department of Education looks at it. So the final grade may be quite different to what the teacher gives. So in essence, um, you know, it's quite anonymized that way, and I think that's a protection for teachers. And also you see that recently there, the ASCI, ensuring that the indemnity that was given is, is robust for teachers so that they cannot be sued, um, uh, were successfully sued, should I say, or the cost of that would not, would not be borne by the teacher. Mm. And that's a good move too, you know. One of the other interesting elements to all of this, I mean, time and time again, and we've spoken to you um, individually too, Arthur, about this on, on many of the programmes, about the mm. need to, or perhaps the call to reform the Leave Insert in its current yeah. format anyway here in this yeah. country at the moment. Um, yeah. And we talk an awful lot about, you know, when when graduate entry into college and then people's you might have a great student in school and then they go into college and when they're one of three or four hundred in a lecture hall they sort of become anonymous when they don't have lecture notes handed to them and fed to them to digest and you know to regurgitate back in a page then it becomes problematic Um, so is this now the time to sit down when we we sort of have a little bit of a trial run that's been albeit enforced upon us but is now the time to sit down and just look at the whole leave insert as it is I would absolutely. There is a lot of work, a lot of work being done on the future of the, of the leaving certificate um, by a number of different groups, and it is absolutely the time to do it. And whilst it's unfortunate that this terrible uh, affliction has, has has come upon us, but in actual fact, it, it has it has a benefit of actually looking at uh, carefully looking at the leaving certificate itself. There was a report recently that came out <coughs> that um, talked about uh, students from grind schools not doing as well. Mm 
in college afterwards. Now, this really is, a, is an interesting pointer to the fact that schools, our schools in this country, uh, and our education system, not the leaving certificate, I hasten to add, but our system of education in this country is very, very um, robust and comprehensive. It's not just the classroom, it's the GAA, it's the chess, it's the drama, it's all the things that teachers get involved in that actually help students to develop skills. And those are the skills which see them do well uh, in college later on in terms of interpersonal skills, problem-solving skills, all the skills that are generated through the outside the classroom work are becoming more and more important. And this is, I think, this um, this new way of, of assessing the students uh, through the Leaving Certificate will, I think, make uh, certainly some pathways into changing that Leaving Certificate as we know it. Mm. I'm interested in just your sort of the, the feedback and the engagement, Arthur, that you're hearing from, I'm sure, both parents and from maybe yeah. this year's students and, and, and next year's, the current fifth year's, the next year's yeah. Leaving Certs. What do you think the reaction will be to um, a proposed change to the to the current format that the leave insert is in? Well, you see, that's a very good question because uh, we have for years seen the leaving certificate since 1926, I think it was, when it was first introduced, and has become part of the culture of our our country. Um, it's like the sacred cow. It's, 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 it's there. And, it, you know, everybody says it's been there for years and years and years. And it's going to be very difficult to, I think, to... Uh, I suppose to let people know that there is another way that is more efficient. Now, the calls for change are quite extensive um, from all the different sectors. Uh, and I think that's what's, what will make the, the changes happen. Um, but it is it is something that we have to get our heads around. And the feedback would be, oh, I'm not so sure, you know, problem here, problem there, problem there. But in actual fact, uh, what I've seen to date is that in this uh, in this situation, when we have the calculated grades this year, Many of the parents I've spoken to and many of the principals and teachers I've spoken to are quite happy with this and I, I feel that it, it's a good system. So we're getting a lot of good feedback, particularly from parents and from students, that uh, it's, uh, they're looking forward to the idea of um, their work being uh, calculated, not just on one three-hour exam. So that's, that's been very positive. And I think it's, it's important to ensure that the way in which we bring any changes into the Leaving Certificate are well documented and very well uh, publicised and discussed and get a consensus of what's, what's happening based on fact and research, educational research that shows that there is a better way to develop skills in young people. And I'm just interested, you know, in terms of the kind of feeling that there might be, Arthur, from last year's <clears throat> Leaving Certs and next year's Leaving Certs around the fact that the 2020 class will have sort of sat, you know, or had a different kind of an examination. I mean, would there be that feeling that they didn't go through the same stress as we did? The results aren't comparable. I mean, do you think is that is that something that's likely to materialise? It, it might do, but the bottom line is the Leaving Certificate is used predominantly for entry into third level. That's what it's used as. I mean, we have a very, very high rate of completion at second level, uh, more than most uh, European countries, most more in the world, actually. Over 90% of our students complete second level schooling, which is a fantastically high number. Um, <clears throat> but it's a, it's a mechanism to get children into, um, into, into college of third level. That's what it does. So whilst they may feel, you know, well, you didn't have the same stresses, ultimately, it's only the first step in their journey. I mean, the leaving certificate is, is, used to be the end of it. That's what it's called, but the leaving of school. But is it the beginning? of another journey, which is probably 
more important, where we begin to develop our feelings, our thoughts and our creative urges come uh, much more quickly, I think, in the, in the college years. And we're able to um, develop those other skills uh, by meeting different people, by having opportunities to go overseas, um, discussing, uh, working on, on student strengths, what they're good at. All that sort of stuff is, <clears throat> is very, very good. And I think that's what's going to um, really matter rather than the leaving civic itself. I think when you get into college, uh, that's, that's when we start to grow and, and, and develop. Arthur Gonsal, who is, of course, um, the, the former headmaster of St. Andrew's College and also of Gonsal Education. My thanks to you for joining us on the programme today. You're listening to News Talks Between the Lines programme. We'll have more on this issue in just a moment. Between the Lines on News Talk. Well, you're welcome back to the final part of today's Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan. We're continuing our discussion, looking at the impact of COVID-19 on the education sector. But we're turning our attention now to the third level area. And we're joined on the line by the uh, Maynooth University professor, John O'Brennan. John, just first of all, um, I'm curious as to how all of this, the entire COVID-19 pandemic, the change to teaching, the online virtual teaching and the fact that the colleges have been closed now for some weeks. How is all of that impacting on well, lecturers and, and more importantly, students? Well, uh, as in other sectors, it's been very difficult. Uh, it's been wonderful to see how people pull together uh, right across our university and I can uh, see across others as well, um, but there's there, there's really no substitute for the physical presence on campus. I believe where students are interacting not just with their uh, lecturers but with each other, and they're exchanging knowledge and learning from each other. Uh, that being said, I think we've coped uh, pretty well. But now that we're at the the end of the university year, we're doing um, surveys of students, and I suspect all the universities are. And we really want to try and drill down to a granular level to see what student experiences have been like. And there seems to be a very broad range. Um, we know that um, people have been affected by bereavement. I had one student, for example, who last week told me that he had lost two grandparents uh, over the previous month. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have um, very difficult situations in some households due to a chronic lack of space and people being confined together. Uh, people are experiencing deterioration in their mental health. Um, so depression has become more of an issue than it might otherwise be. So there's a whole set of issues there around general well-being. Uh, and the second set uh, are about connectivity, because, of course, when you're doing remote learning, everything depends on your broadband connection, how good it is and so on. Uh, and I've seen that it's varied enormously. Some students just don't have access to the requisite equipment. There might be uh, one device within a household for three or four people. Uh, Kids are sharing devices and so they have to sort of alternate times uh, during the day when they can actually use them. We've had some people trying to do elaborate enough coursework on their phones because they have access to no other devices. And there does seem to be a correlation here between relative degree of household wealth 
and the degree to which people can participate as seamlessly, you know, as, as as we would like. So there are lots of different issues. I've no doubt that we will learn a lot. We've been learning on the job, as it were, over the last eight or ten weeks. Um, but I actually find the, the thought of teaching like this for another academic year kind of depressing, um, because whatever kind of advances we can make with technology and to make things mm-hmm. work, there really isn't a substitute for that person-to-person interaction, whether it's with colleagues and with students. Like I find every year, I learn an enormous amount from my own students. And um, I, I just wonder what that's going to be like next year. We know that we won't be teaching uh, physically uh, up to January uh, and the second semester of the academic year at yeah. the very least. So. Yeah, you know, it, it's anybody's guess as to what it will and all look like. It's it's funny because I know when I cast my mind back to my own time in in college, um, I mean the, the 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 prospect that I would have to sit at home now and self discipline myself to sit down and read lecture notes and do assignments online, and not have that sort of encouragement that you get from both kind of teaching staff and and your colleagues and your friends and that kind of thing. I know I would find incredibly difficult, and I'm sure a lot of students find that. So I'm wondering what's the impact of all of this on the learning process for the students? Well, I think the simple answer is we really don't know. I mean, it's an entirely unprecedented situation. We have had elements of blended learning or online learning uh, that have come into our programs to different degrees, depending on the discipline over the last 20 years. Like I use the an intranet service to Uh, post material that's completely contemporary for students that's coming out all the time. Um, I use it to uh, do class forums and things like that, but we've never had to go to a 100% model like this. So I hope that we'll actually learn a lot from the surveys we do of students, and that will leave us in a better position come September to deliver the kind of quality teaching that we normally would within our campuses. Um, But I think you're right. You know, there are problems of discipline and not just, by the way, for students, for staff as well, uh, because staff are subject to exactly the same sort of pressures uh, that our students are. Um, so, uh, again, I think we'll, uh, we, we will sit down within our individual departments and faculties and look at all of this uh, over the course of the summer. Uh, But I think we have to just expect that probably the entire academic year from September is going to be a remote one rather than a physical one. Okay. The other interesting element to all of this is how the the colleges, the the various different um, educational institutes adapt. And news earlier this week that the government isn't going to cover the the losses of nearly 500 million euro facing third level colleges, a warning from the Department of Education. What's the kind of real impact of of that warning um, on colleges and for lecturers like yourself? Well, the simple truth is that the university sector has been under enormous strain over the last five years. Funding per student has fallen by 40% in real terms since 2008. Now, if you think about that, it's really staggering. Uh, One consequence of it is that the staff-student ratio in our third-level colleges is much higher than those in our peer countries, like Holland, Sweden, Denmark, uh, within the European Union, for example. Universities have been literally creaking at the seams. 
Now, part of that is demographic issues, you know, especially around Dublin, uh, so that the numbers have just kept increasing and will do so uh, for years to come. And this has been matched by chronic underfunding of the system over a very long period of time. It's very difficult still for universities to hire staff or was before uh, the COVID uh, crisis occurred. Politicians bleat on endlessly about how proud they are of the Irish education system, of how great it is, how it compares internationally, and then they refuse to fund it adequately. You can see, I well, think... Well, they'll in, refuse that, but... Yeah, but well, of course they will, but you can see it very clearly in the evidence. They have postponed, for example, taking a decision on fees on and on how the university system should okay. be funded, even though we have multiple reports, Peter Castle's report and many others, that tell us that there is a mix of different funding options available. But they've just allowed the situation drift on. And I really don't think that the answer to this is to go back to the post-2008 model of austerity for all. People are not going to accept that for the healthcare sector, for housing and education. Just on a final point as well, John, for today, you know, we various different organisations like the Lights of the, the, the Children's Rights Alliance only quite recently, you know, calling for the reopening of schools. We've heard from various different organisations on this programme today. Do you think could the third level education, um, could the third level institutes, like could the likes of Maynooth University, could it get reopened again in September? I don't really see any way that that is possible currently, Andrea, with the guidelines we have on social distancing whether it's two metres or one metres, it really doesn't matter. We have a new report from the Higher Education Authority that says that a lecture theatre of 500 students should now be reduced to 50. And even if you were to increase that to 100, the the, the physical challenge makes it impossible. And it's not just lecture theatres. We can do the small group stuff like tutorial and seminar teaching. That shouldn't be a problem where you have a maximum of 15 students, say, in in a room. Uh, But it becomes more and more difficult for uh, lectures to take place. Uh, And I just don't see that we can reconfigure our spaces in anything like an adequate way. And it's not just about uh, lectures. It's also about common spaces. I know that within my own university, there are some buildings where the spaces um, where students kind of pass through and faculty are so narrow that when everybody sort of comes out at the end of the hour, uh, it just makes Mm. it impossible to do the kind of distancing that we will need to do, I think, as we play cat and mouse with the virus over the next two years, potentially. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see the impact of all of this on the the whole education, college, the learning experience for students as well. We'll have to leave it there for the moment. My thanks to Maynooth University Professor John O'Brannan for joining us on the programme today. I'm afraid that's all we have time for. If you've missed any of the programme, you can download the podcast on our website at newstalk.com or on the Go Loud app. Um, My thanks to everyone who took part in today's episode and to the production team, Simon Keane and Stephen Jordan. I'll be back again with Between the Lines this time next week. But for me, Andrea Gilligan, have a good day. Between the Lines on Newstalk.